0: Trigger warning, child abuse, sexual abuse in a church setting, rachelheldevans.com, this is her blog, March 18, 2013, No More Silence, an interview with Boss Titch Vigian of Grace, G-R-A-C-E. GRACE stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. This is the second post of our week-long series, Into the Light, a series on abuse in the church, which features the stories of abuse survivors, along with insights from professional counselors, legal experts, and church leaders about how to better prepare Christians to prevent and respond to abuse. Check out this morning's post from Mary DeMuth. Through the course of this series, we'll be discussing child abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual violence and abuse and domestic violence. In addition, my friends Hannah, Joy, Shaney, and Alora will be hosting a Synchro blog focused specifically on spiritual abuse, which you can learn more about here. This afternoon I am pleased to feature an interview with Basile Boss Tijvigian a founding member and executive director of Grace, GRAC, godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. Born in Vevey, Switzerland, Boz grew up in South Florida where he served as assistant state attorney, Seventh Judicial Circuit, 1994 through 2001, seven years to be exact. While in that position, he was chief prosecutor sexual crimes division where he gained much experience in cases involving sexual abuse and harassment. In 2003, Bost helped found Grace to educate and equip the faith community to correctly respond to sexual abuse disclosures while also providing practical guidance to churches on how to protect children. Grace provides confidential consultations to churches schools and other organizations which are struggling with issues involving sexual abuse Boz and his family live near lynchburg virginia where he serves as a law professor at liberty university school of law he is blessed to be a grandson of dr billy graham and recently published his first book entitled invitation billy graham and the lives god touched I tried to incorporate some of your questions from the comment section into the interview. I hope you learn as much from Boz as I did. Please consider passing this along to the leadership of your church to ensure they are doing everything in their power to prevent and report abuse. Boss Tichivan, Rachel, I wanna thank you for the opportunity to be interviewed and to hopefully highlight some fundamental issues confronting today's church. I want to thank and acknowledge the following dear friends for giving me invaluable guidance in the preparation of these answers. Diane Langberg, Phil Monroe, Duncan Rankin, Tamara Rice, Andrew Schmutzer, and Victor Vieth. I don't have the time or space to thank the untold number of saints who God uses to encourage and inspire me each day along this difficult but beautiful path rachel held evans well thank you for taking the time to discuss this important issue to start tell us a little about what grace grac so if i say bt that's boss talking if i say rhe that's rachel talking okay BT. In 1994, I became a prosecutor in Central Florida and eventually became the chief of the sexual crimes division. During that time, God opened my eyes to the physical, emotional, and spiritual harm resulting from child sexual abuse. After leaving the prosecutor's office in 2001, I was burdened to apply what I had learned on the front lines as a child sexual abuse prosecutor in helping to train and equip the faith community to address the many issues associated with abuse. In response to this burden, I formed Grace in 2004. Within just a few short years, God brought together a group of internationally respected experts from various disciplines. Our board of directors consists of current and former child abuse prosecutors, investigators, mental health professionals, and theologians. Taken together, our board has well over 100 years of experience working with abused and neglected children. Our board members have authored numerous scholarly works on child maltreatment. That's the same thing as mistreatment have served as expert witnesses in courts of law, have testified before Congress, and have taught thousands of professionals throughout the United States and many parts of the world. During the past eight years, GRACE has primarily focused on two issues, prevention and response. We spend much of our time working with churches and other faith organizations on how to minimize opportunities for abuse to occur within their environments. We also provide assistance to the Christian community in understanding the vital importance of responding to abuse disclosures in a manner that demonstrates both knowledge of the issues and compassion to those involved. In recent years, Grace has had the opportunity to assist major faith-based institutions in addressing allegations regarding their alleged mishandling of past abuse disclosures. Oftentimes, the survivors of such abuse do not trust the institution to internally investigate and evaluate such claims. As a result, These institutions have requested GRACE to act as a third-party investigator and provide an open and objective analysis of the facts along with recommendations. Our current independent investigation involves Bob Jones University. This work has also been instrumental in facilitating substantive charges in how some of these institutions understand and respond to issues related related to child abuse. Most recently, Grace is in the process of a breakthrough project that will fundamentally change the way the faith community addresses and responds to the many issues associated with child abuse. I will discuss this in greater detail below. Rachel, during your, time, during your tenure as a prosecutor, you prosecuted hundreds of child abuse cases and then went on to be a founding member of Grace. What motivates you to do this kind of work? It must be heartbreaking at times. Why is it so important? How does your faith inform your work? Boss. Uh. Um. I'm gonna have all the compassion. What I am about to share with you. Usually that's what I do. Um. Okay. Uh, whoo, Because of what happened to me at five, being raped myself. Ooh. Okay. It was not until I became a prosecutor that I saw for the very first time the utter devastation that is caused by the horrors of sexual abuse, I will never forget sitting across my desk from weeping parents who had only recently learned that their nine-year-old daughter had been Sexually victimized by one of their best friends. (laughs) (sighs) I will also never forget meeting that beautiful nine-year-old little girl. a girl whose life had just begun, but who never had the opportunity to enjoy childhood because of the evil's purpose. Because of the evils perpetrated upon her, though the abuse had forever changed the life of this precious child, I came to realize that the abuse had not destroyed her soul, and that underneath, and, and that underneath it all, she was still a nine-year-old who had childhood interests aspirations for what she wanted to do when she quote-unquote grew up and even dreamed of going to Disney World. It was during those moments when I realized that God had given me an incredible privilege to be placed in such a position for the purpose of expending myself to those who are struggling through these very dark and painful valleys of life. During the past 10 years as the Executive Director of Grace, I have been so blessed to have many Similar precious experiences with abuse survivors. However, one of the great tragedies I've encountered is how the church has so often failed in expending itself in love to so many survivors of abuse. I have too often seen where the church has sacrificed the individual soul for the benefit (in quotations) and protection (in quotations) of the institution. Let me read that again. I have too often seen where the church has sacrificed the individual's soul for the benefit and protection of the institution. Grace often encounters these wonderful individuals years later and discovers that so many have lost all hope in life and are unable to have a relationship with God. And I cannot blame or fault them. I cannot blame them and I cannot fault them. The blame and fault lies squarely with a professing Christian community who has all too often failed to understand and apply the beautiful gospel in which God sacrifices God's self for the individual, not the other way around. In fact, I have a quote from Mr. Boss where... He says, when it comes to child sexual abuse, too many churches and Christian organizations prefer to sacrifice individuals in order to protect themselves. We end up living out the very antithesis of the gospel that we preach. The consequences are devastating. In Bos's view, the legalistic authoritarian culture of some Protestant organizations was particularly susceptible to what he called spiritual abuse, the attempt of religious leaders to silence victims or convince them that they deserve their abuse. He became convinced that evangelical institutions were not properly addressing incidents of sexual abuse, incidents that he believed would eventually lead to scandals similar to those that had damaged the Catholic Church. Grace began in 2003 when a reporter called Boz about a case of sexual abuse mishandled by a pastor. Let me read that again. The blame and fault lie squarely with a professing Christian community. All, who has all too often failed to understand and apply the beautiful gospel in which God sacrificed God's self for the individual, not the other way around. Abuse survivors often struggle to believe that those of us from grace are Christians simply because we listen to them and valued them as human beings. One recent survivor expressed, I have never been treated with I have never been treated with so much love and compassion There was no judgment. There was no shame. I was accepted for who I was. They valued me as a person. Let me quote that survivor again. One recent survivor expressed, I have never been treated with so much love and compassion. There was no judgment. There was no shame. I was accepted for who I was. They valued me as a person. Another survivor wrote, I am realizing more and more that pretty much no one in the Christian community seems to care about any of these things at least not in the sense of doing anything about it or speaking out against it. I'm thankful that grace does one more time for that survivor. I'm realizing more and more that pretty much no one in the Christian community seems to care about any of these things, at least not in the sense of doing anything about it or speaking out against it. I'm thankful that grace does. The words of Jesus that most often run through my head and heart these days is, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Mark chapter 9 verse 37. God has helped me to realize that the love I expend for these incredible people is fueled by the love God expended for me. It is that powerful and beautiful truth That keeps me going even during the darkest of days. Knowing that God is using me in some small way to demonstrate Jesus to those whose knowledge and understanding of God have been distorted or destroyed, or both, is an incredible blessing for which I do not deserve. Rachel, what are some of the most common mistakes churches and Christian organizations make when it comes to preventing child abuse? Silence is one of the most common failures of the Christian community in preventing child abuse. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, upon learning that his sister Tamar had been raped by her brother Amnon, Absalom stated, keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. Tragically, not much has changed in over three thousand years too many within the christian community respond to the prevalence of child abuse with a dangerous and very hurtful silence a silence that is too often preferred over acknowledging the existence of such evil within our midst a silence that is too often preferred over openly discussing how to protect our little ones from perpetrators A silence that is too often preferred over the hard work required to develop and implement effective child protection policies. A silence that is too often preferred over the cries of hurting children. Though we are greatly encouraged by the fact that more and more churches are adopting child protection policies, one common mistake is that that many of these policies are being developed by those who have very little knowledge and experience with addressing child abuse. A Ph.D., M.D., or even J.D. after a person's last name does not automatically qualify them to develop effective child protection policies. As a result, these policies often fall short in effectively protecting little ones. One common example is the overdependence upon background checks. Background checks only catch perpetrators who have been caught and convicted in court. In our book, Predators, Dr. Anna Salter references one study that found that men who... Molested children average between 20 to 150 victims. What this clearly tells us is that by the time an offender gets caught, they have very likely already victimized dozens of other children. Thus, background checks provide no protection against perpetrators who have never been caught or simply never will. Grace encourages churches and other Christian organizations to seek out the assistance of trained child protection professionals when drafting their child protection policies. The other common failure in preventing child abuse is the notion that having a good child protection policy makes children safe. A child protection policy is the is only the first step in minimizing the opportunities for abuse. In fact, one consequence of an effective child protection policy is that it will help to develop a culture of protection within the church slash organization. This simply means that protecting children becomes a way of life for the Christian community, not something to to be put back on the shelf once a policy has been adopted. A culture of protection can be evidenced by a church that always keeps issues related to abuse on the forefront of its agenda. For example, such a culture may include some or all of the following. Ongoing safety classes for parents, children, and youth. Sermons that teach about the value of children that openly address issues related to abuse. Ongoing child protection training for staff and volunteers. And the hosting of community-wide events that address issues related to abuse. We're encouraged by more and more churches that have expressed a desire To make child protection a priority of their culture. We provide a variety of resources on our website for churches and individuals who want to learn how to minimize the opportunities for abuse within their own environment. Rachel, what are some of the most common mistakes churches and Christian organizations make when it comes to responding to abuse? The greatest, this is boss talking. The greatest failure of the church slash Christian organizations when it comes to responding to abuse is institutional self-protection. Ooh, I got to read that again. As a sexual abuse survivor, rape survivor, and molestation survivor myself, you understand the breathtaking pauses I make. This is boss talking. The greatest failure of the church slash Christian organizations when it comes to responding to abuse is institutional self-protection. Too often Christian or institutions have been willing to sacrifice the individual human soul in exchange for the protection of their own reputation. One more time. Too often Christian institutions have been willing to sacrifice the individual human soul in exchange for the protection of their own reputation. That's what he means when he says institutional self-protection. What makes such responses even more heinous is that they are often justified in the name of protecting the name of Christ. Such a justification is nothing but a pious attempt at self-protection. It may come as a surprise to some, but Jesus does not need us to protect his name. In fact, it was Jesus who sacrificed himself for the soul of the individual. Tragically, in all of its attempts at self-protection, the church too often completely misses this beautiful truth. As a result, many abuse survivors in the church are pushed away from the arms of Jesus and prevented from experiencing glorious gospel love. This reminds me of the passage in Mark chapter 10 when the disciples rebuke the parents for bringing their children into the arms of Jesus. This passage is perhaps one of the most powerful biblical illustrations of how often it is those who walk closest to Jesus prevent children from approaching him. One more time, this passage is perhaps one of the most powerful biblical illustrations of how often it is those who walk closest to Jesus prevent, prevent, prevent children from approaching him. As a result, many abuse survivors in the church are pushed away from the arms of Jesus and prevented from experiencing glorious gospel love. Tragically... And all of his attempts at self protection, the church too often completely misses this beautiful truth. In fact, it was Jesus who sacrificed himself for the soul of the individual. Now you understand why I repeat. It is not that the disciples didn't care about these children, but they just cared more about what they believed was important to Jesus. In fact, I will step further than Boss not to compete with him. Lots of people in church don't care about children at all lots of people in church don't care about abuse survivors at all (sighs) it unfortunately this is still the response of many church leaders when confronted by abuse our lord could not have been clear to his disciples that children are his pressing priority that he takes great joy in their presence This beautiful and powerful truth has not changed. Now, before I read any further, I'm not assigning gender to God. In fact, you can say any deity, any Christ figure, any Messiah, any Supreme Being, you can see them as man, woman, the entire gender and sexual diversity because I'm avoiding patriarchy because patriarchy is traumatic. I often share with church leaders that the gospel centered response to abuse by the institution is one that demonstrates transparency, vulnerability, and sacrifice. This is so powerfully demonstrated by the fact that God did God's most powerful work when God's child was naked, transparent and weak vulnerable nailed to a cross sacrifice we're talking about jesus here if such was the res let me repeat that again this is so powerfully demonstrated by the fact that god did god's most powerful work when god's child jesus was naked transparent and weak vulnerable nailed to a cross sacrifice if such was the response of the church to those who have suffered abuse Many would be discovering authentic love and hope for the very first time. I recently asked a group of abuse survivors what they considered to be a godly response to abuse. Some of their responses were as follows. And these should all be Christian traits, by the way. And all these traits I'm about to read to you, lots of people in church lack these traits. One hundred percent. Humility. Listen without criticism. Being honest that we don't have all the answers. Love the victim. Don't try to explain what happened or give plat answers or pat quotations. No. Love the victim. Read over his interactions with people throughout the the Gospels. Read over his interactions with people throughout the Bible. And let the Lord speak through you. I find their responses to be an incredibly beautiful picture of what an authentic Jesus-centered church should be to precious souls who have experienced abuse of any kind. Perhaps St. Teresa put it best when she wrote, and I'm going to be gender and sexually inclusive when I read this, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands or feet but yours. Yours are the eyes in, in which Jesus sees. Yours are the feet in which Jesus walks. Yours are the hands in which Jesus blesses all the world. May God and God's mercy continue to transform the heart and soul of God's church. And I'm going to show you in a little while how to comfort a good victims. I'm going to let the book of Job show you how to do it. So you can learn how to suffer with people because there's not enough of that in church and there's not enough of that in the world. We need to do that more. Rachel, how do children typically disclose abuse? Boss, generally speaking, children don't intentionally disclose their victimization. There are many reasons for this. As adults, we would feel uncomfortable publicly disclosing even positive sexual experiences. Okay, I'm sorry. Ah, calm down. Tell me myself that because that's why I read too fast sometimes because I'm so focused on I got to get all this done in time. No, just, Antonio, just relax. Okay. How do children typically disclose abuse? Boss. Generally speaking, children don't intentionally disclose their victimization. There are many reasons for this. As adults, we would feel uncomfortable publicly disclosing even positive sexual experiences with our marriage partners and non-marriage partners. In the same way, children are understandably reluctant to disclose their sexual experiences, particularly when the experiences are negative. Since most abuse is at the hands of a loved one, A child may be worried what will happen to their parent and to them if the parent is removed from the home. A boy may be worried that disclosure will cause him to be labeled as weak or as a homosexual. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being LGBTQIA+. Had to say it. Had to do that as a human rights person. Children who have a biological reaction to sexual abuse may blame themselves for the abuse. Some children have been threatened or had their pets threatened as a means of coercing them to maintain the secret. One Christian survivor of abuse told me how her father tortured her cat as a means of keeping her quiet. Children who have been photographed may be scared that the images of them having sex with a loved one will be shown on television. As a result of these and other dynamics, many victims carry their secrets into adulthood, even to the grave. In many cases, the child makes an accidental disclosure. In one Christian school, for example, the children are asked to keep a journal as a means of encouraging them to write. One of the children wrote in her journal about her father sexually abusing her, unaware that the teacher would be collecting the journals. In another case, a Christian girl was staying over at a friend's house and the mother of her friend overheard her bedtime prayer. Dear Jesus, please don't let dad have sex with me on my birthday. Sometimes older children disclose abuse as part of an angry outburst. In one case, a father denied his teenage daughter the keys to the car and at a family reunion, the daughter angrily denounced her dad and called him a child molester. Sometimes a child will tell a best friend who discloses the abuse to an authority figure. In one case, a 14-year-old rape victim detailed the abuse in a letter to her best friend in northern Minnesota. The letter was discovered by the mother of the victim's friend, There are times when children will share their abuse with a close friend who promises not to tell anyone else. Unfortunately, these friend disclosures are often accompanied by a promise not to tell anyone else. All too often, these disclosures are never reported. Environments where abuse issues are openly addressed and discussed are the environments that children will be most empowered to come forward and disclose. Rachel, are false allegations of abuse common among children? Boss, in the nearly two decades I've worked as or with prosecutors, I never get asked about false allegations of burglary, robbery, arson, or a host of other offenses. However, nearly every time I speak to laypersons about child abuse, the question of false allegations is among the first things laypersons ask. In the wake of some high-profile daycare abuse cases in the mid-1980s, there was a rash of studies which found that with enough, with enough effort, it might be possible to convince a small percentage of typically very young children that something happened to them which in fact did not happen. In one study, for example, researchers got some very young children to believe they got their finger caught in a mousetrap when, in fact, they had never had this experience. Of course, there is no study in which researchers try to convince young children that they had been sexually abused by someone, but existing research does make clear that children should be interviewed by well-trained professionals skilled in child development, cognitive development, and a whole host of factors that may contribute to a child's suggestiveness. Since the 1980s, federal and state governments have poured significant resources into improving the quality of interviews with children suspected of being abused. Many states have developed intensive 5-day interviews course interviewing courses for frontline investigators. Although these reforms do not eliminate the possibility of a false allegation, they greatly reduce the possibility. Also helpful, it is also helpful to remember that even before the investigative re- reforms, several studies confirm what common sense teaches that it is extremely unusual for a child, particularly a young child, to make a false allegation of abuse. For example, a study conducted in 2000 found that only 1.5% of sexual abuse disclosures by children were false. There are at least three reasons for this. First, young children have limited knowledge of sexual activity. A four-year-old child who describes performing an of fallational Performing an act of elation on her father did not acquire that knowledge from watching Sesame Street. Even if the child was exposed to explicit pornography, it is unlikely that she could describe the sights, smells, or sounds of sexual abuse unless she actually experienced the event. Second, in most cases, tremendous familial and societal pressure is placed on the child not to make an allegation of abuse. A child disclosing abuse may be removed from the home, forced to live with strangers may have to endure an uncomfortable medical examination, may have to speak with adults about uncomfortable sexual matters and will often be ostracized by their families and in their homes, schools, and churches. I'll also add they may be forced into survival sex. I've heard of those stories, too. These pressures are so great that many abused children will decide that living with a lie is easier than telling the truth and will recant a truthful allegation. Third, children are not the sophisticated liars that adults are. Although all human beings can and do lie, young children are not very good at it. A young child may deny taking the last cookie from the cookie jar, but the crumbs on their face give them away. When a friend of mine was a little boy, he was eating a pork chop dinner with his mother. When his mother when his mom left the dining room table for a moment, my friend seized the pork chop, ran into the living room and stuffed it down a couch. When his mother returned to asked him where the pork chop was, he lied and told her that he ate it. When my friend's mother asked what happened to the bone, he told her that he had thrown it outside. When his mother asked him to show her where the bone was, my friend finally caved and confessed it was in the couch. giving us given the unsophisticated nature of children's lives it is doubtful that many if any young children could concoct a detailed believable story of sexual abuse and keep it intact over several rest citations and under the scrutiny of cross-examination at the hands of a skilled defense attorney thus both empirical research and experience clearly conclude that false allegations of child sexual abuse are highly uncommon amongst children some churches seem to think that reports of abuse are best handled in-house without contacting authorities why is this a mistake as grace works with churches and other christian institutions we often encounter professing christians who struggle with whether suspected abuse within the christian community should be reported to the civil authorities this struggle extends beyond the borders of the united states and unfortunately sometimes the mindset of missionary organizations The issue often presented to be at the heart of this critical struggle is whether the church is obligated to subject itself to the laws of people when it believes that it is capable to address the sin in the house. A fundamental question that Christians must confront when processing this issue is whether the church is subject to the laws of civil government. This is an issue that has generated years and volumes of debate within the Christian community ever since Christ was confronted by the Pharisees concerning what belonged to Caesar. Regardless of how one sides on this issue... A plain reading of Romans chapter 13 clearly indicates that the civil government plays a role in God's design for society and God's people. Many Christians seem to differ on the extent to which Christians are morally obligated to obey civil laws that do not require disobedience to God's law, in which cases um, they must not obey. There is nothing more that I can contribute to that debate, which has not already been argued and re-argued for centuries. However, there seems to be a general consensus among Christians that the civil government has a general duty and obligation to establish order within society for the purpose of protecting its citizenry from physical harm intentionally inflicted by others. A central purpose of criminal law is to punish those in society who intentionally commit inherently wrong actions that result in some form of harm to another. Such punishments are a necessary and central ingredient to an orderly and safe society. If that is the case, can there be any greater responsibility of the civil government than to punish citizens who violate laws designed to protect society's most vulnerable members, children, in order to determine whether such a law has has been violated, the civil government must be notified of the alleged offense. Governments are incapable of carrying out this biblical mandate if the citizens fail to report the alleged criminal actions. Therefore, Christians impede this biblical mandate when we fail to report suspected crimes against children to the civil government for investigation and possible prosecution of the offenders. Hindering another from carrying out a biblical mandate is disobedience to God, otherwise known as sin. In order to effectively carry out its responsibility protecting children, most states have laws that mandate certain citizens to report suspected neglect or abuse of children. Violation of these mandated reporting laws subjects the violator to criminal penalties, including but not limited to jail. Thus, Christians in the United States have both a biblical and legal mandate to report suspected abuse of children. When they fail to fulfill this mandate, Christians can and should be prosecuted. For example, in recent months, two pastors at Victory Christian Center, a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, were criminally charged for failing to report child sexual abuse disclosures. Besides the biblical and legal grounds for reporting suspected abuse to the civil authorities, there are also practical reasons to do so. The church lacks the understanding, experience, and abilities to address abuse issues in-house. The civil government has the exclusive authority to unilaterally remove children from guardians who are inflicting physical and slash or emotionally emotional harm. Therefore, if a child is suspected of being maltreated, mistreated by their guardian, the child will generally not be removed from such an environment unless such has been brought to the attention of the proper authorities. Oftentimes, the child's very survival is based upon whether we take the initiative and report suspected abuse. There can be little debate within the Christian community that the protection and survival of children is a God-ordained responsibility that we cannot neglect or or excuse. I have yet to encounter an abuse situation that was handled in-house where the consequences were not extremely harmful to the abuse survivor. All too often, these issues are handled in-house in a church-centered attempt to avoid public scrutiny, and to bring the matter to a close as quickly as possible so that the church can return to more productive gospel work, and quotations. The sooner a church can manipulate some form of, quote-unquote, reconciliation between the victim and the perpetrator, the sooner it can forget about this messy situation. Tragically, this rush to reconciliation will often guilt the victim into thinking that the harmful effects of the abuse are a result of their own spiritual weaknesses or failures and that a quote-unquote godly response to abuse requires the embrace of the offender while minimizing the effects of the abuse. Not surprisingly, this church-centered response leads to devastating consequences in the life of the abuse survivor. Such responses to abuse have nothing to do with the gospel and everything to do with placing the. in Such responses to abuse have nothing to do with the gospel and everything to do with placing the institution over the individual. And everything to do with placing the institution over the individual. Such in-house institution-centered response can also reap devastation by exposing unsuspecting children and families to perpetrators. Grace recently conducted an independent investigation involving a missionary organization where a missionary physician confessed to sexually victimizing a child on the mission field. The perpetrator was sent home with a letter sent to supporting and host churches explaining that his premature return home was based upon a moral indiscretion. Moral indiscretion. As a result, this self-confessed child molester was able to return home and operate a family medical practice over 20 years. From everything we could gather, this physician's patients, or anyone else for that matter, had any knowledge of his prior sexual abuse. To date, no one knows how many other children may have been sexually victimized by this offender at his medical practice within his community. Sadly, this type of situation is all too common within the Christian community that decides to handle abuse claims in-house. Why do some churches and other Christian institutions struggle to report suspected abuse of civil authorities? Regardless of the stated reasons, the common thread running through this struggle is a fear that is rooted in self centeredness, selfishness, if you will. It is in an arrogance and pridefulness and haughtiness, if you will, too. It is a fear of losing the good reputation of a ministry, it is the fear of losing ministry donors. It is the fear of losing congregation members. It is the fear of losing a ministry altogether. And all such fears are usually wrapped in a fundamental falsehood lie that reporting such abuse within the Christian community will damage the cause of Christ. Do you see the great tragedy of this self-centered fear? Ultimately, it is an attempt to rob God of God's sovereignty and glory by attempting to protect identities and possessions. He put these all in quotations, by the way. This is not This is not This is not This is in in indirect contravention of the gospel. This is in indirect contravention of the gospel. The gospel tells us that our identity is in Christ alone and and that our reputation and all that we possess belongs to God. Another way of putting it is that apart from Christ's accomplishment, we have no reputation and we possess nothing. This gospel-centered perspective gives Christians, including churches, great freedom to confess, confront, and expose sin without fear of their earthly consequences. By doing so, acknowledge God's holiness, God's sovereignty, and our dependence upon the power of the gospel. This gospel-centered perspective must drive the church to obey the God-ordained civil authorities who are charged with protecting our little ones and punishing those who harm them. The next time someone tells you that reporting suspected abuse within the Christian community will hurt the cause of Christ, tell them they are attempting to rob God of worship when we leave criminal behavior to fester and grow in the darkness of silence. Oh, by the way, you're hurting the cause of Christ when you don't provide justice to the victims of any kind of abuse by those selfish, lie-based fears. Hypocrisy is a sin. If you don't believe me, ask Jesus. Rachel, how does Matthew chapter 18 apply or not apply to abuse situations? Boss, I'm always encountering professing Christians who quote Matthew chapter 18 as the biblical process by which child sexual abuse must be addressed within the Christian community. As a consequence, this passage is used as a justification for one not reporting abuse disclosures to the civil authorities and two convincing sexual abuse victims to privately confront their perpetrators. Needless to say this mis- mis- this misinterpretation of Matthew chapter eighteen is hugely destructive on a number of fronts. More importantly, this misinterpretation is simply not biblical in Matthew chapter eighteen, verse fifteen through seventeen. Jesus describes three progressive steps for handling personal offenses within the local church. One, a private private confrontation. Two, a witness confrontation. And three, a wider confrontation before the church. At each step, the goal is repentance by the offender as a basis for reconciliation with the offender so that fellowship may be restored with the victim. If all three approaches are rebuffed, then the offender is no longer part of the fellowship on earth, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, becoming instead an object of evangelism. A fundamental point that must be understood early on in this discussion is that the crime of child sexual abuse is not merely a personal offense, but rather it is an urgent public concern. Child sexual abuse does not even fit into the paradigm of which Jesus was speaking in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus never intended his statements in Matthew chapter 18 to be twisted into the required method for handling murder, rape, torture, kidnapping, or genocide. Child sexual abuse is not a private matter, but rather a public and civic one, rightly under the sword of the civil authority. All are endangered by this crime against a little one. Matthew chapter 18 is important for local church life because Jesus commands us there how to deal with sin. But it's not the only passage in which Jesus tells us how to deal with sin. It must be properly synthesized with others that address the same subject directly or indirectly. It is critical to remember that all passages are regulated interpreted, interpreted by the balance of Scripture. There's another teaching of Jesus that regulates how child sexual abuse is to be handled procedurally. In Romans chapter 13, Jesus tells us through the, through the apostle Paul that believers are to be subject to the civil authorities. They swing the sword as God's ministers bringing wrath upon evildoers. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Child sexual abuse has been deemed to be criminal by the civil authorities deserving of just punishment the scourge of child sexual abuse is not just a sin violating the seventh commandment exodus chapter 20 verse 14. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27-30, but it's also a criminal offense in all 50 states. It is not a matter which can be handled quietly between two persons or between two families, as was misguidedly done in Genesis chapter 34 and in many churches today. It is a matter of public alarm because of its pervasive, extensive, and expansive nature, causing a cascade of misery in countless lives. Additionally, the God-ordained civil authorities in virtually every jurisdiction mandate in some fashion That suspected child abuse be immediately reported to law enforcement. Thus, any claim that we must follow the Matthew chapter 18 progressive confrontation process before reporting disclosure of child sexual abuse to the civil authorities is simply wrongheaded. God's ministers the civil authorities must be informed first. Um, See how much. In this, child sexual abuse is like murder. Okay, let me just read as best I can. What makes you proud of your work of abuse survivors of the church, Boss? He who would search for Pearls must die below, John Dryden. I often tell people that the Grace team spends a large part of our lives swimming in Christian Sespools that are created within when the Christian community sacrifices Individual souls for institutional protection and reputation. This is a dark underbelly that the church would rather ignore because acknowledging it will require being confronted with its own dark and destructive sins. It's much easier and much more glamorous for the church to invest time and energy into building programs, evangelism techniques, and theological debates. All the while, these cesspools are filling. With precious human souls who are drowning because they lost hope, lost hope in life, lost hope in the church, and lost hope in God. They have lost all hope because the professing Christian community has either abused them or responded with nothing but silence to their cries for help. It is these pearls, that I counter each time I die below, into the dark and lonely cesspools of Christendom. They've been left for dead by much of the church, yet they are the first to expand, to expend of themselves in pursuing and loving other hurting souls. Their own cries have been ignored, but they're the first to listen to the cries of those around them. Though the commitment of the church to abuse survivors is often self-centered and short-lived, the commitment these survivors demonstrate to each other is usually selfless and lifelong. What strikes me is that the gospel is often demonstrated more clearly and more powerfully in those who believe they have lost all hope that... What strikes me is that the gospel is often demonstrated more clearly and more powerfully in those who believe they have lost all hope lost all hope, than in the church itself. In fact, I am more and more convinced that those we think are drowning in the Christian cesspools without hope are actually acting as the hands and feet of Jesus, offering the very hope they themselves lack to the many others who've been forgotten or ignored by the church. In real life, the true heroes are the widows who drop two coins in the plate with nobody noticing except Jesus, the God of the universe. In almost 20 years of addressing this issue, I found that my heroes are the hundreds of abuse survivors God has privileged me to meet and serve in some small way on their journey. Nothing is small to people like me. What many don't realize is that these survivors demonstrated more authentic Jesus than I could ever offer myself. Yes, us, us, us survivors, we're closer to Jesus than non-survivors. Not, not to their own horn. That's just fact, truth, and reality. These saints are the pearls down below. The widows who are given all they have in Jesus' notices. I just wanted to um, make sure I had enough time um, to mention those things. Let's see how much time I got. All right, I'm going to go for it. Um, I'll provide the rest of all these things so you can read them, but I want to make sure that I explain how to comfort people who have been hurting, because if I didn't have time to explain that, then that point would, that should have been made wouldn't have been made, that's not a good thing. So let me read something to you all. It won't be a lot, but it will be a lot. You know what I'm saying? Those who wish to comfort people in sorrow should consider silence before speech, empathy before explanations, and patience with their pain. Even the hardest questions that come out of grief do not require instant answers. Genuine friendship includes attentive, compassionate presence in times of sorrow and loss. Friendship and grief requires patience. Friends in need don't have to have all their questions answered as much as they need to have someone listen. Some questions are so deep that their best response is silence. Make it a point to be with those in pain, but let your physical presence be your strongest statement of support. Allow patience to be patient in your. Be a being of patience. When in doubt about a question, wait. Sit quietly and be the best friend you can be during difficult times. One ancient Jewish tradition teaches that people who come to comfort someone in mourning should not speak until the mourner speaks. That is a wise tradition. For often, the best response to another person's suffering is to say nothing. And then, lastly, I'll say this. We have to understand that when we are comforting people, the best way to comfort people is to sense ourselves within them. What do I mean by that? when I can acknowledge the feeling of second-class citizenship that I've been made to feel countless times in my life, then I can truly help other people that made to feel like they're second-class citizens countless times in their lives, too. And so, the most important thing That we must understand is that comforting people who have been through discomforting moments is highly valued in the survivor community. When you faced a particularly difficult time, what helped you most? While some may have said kind words, most likely it was the presence of a friend and their touch—a hug, an arm around your shoulder, even just a hand laid gently on top of yours. These simple, wordless gestures mean so much to those in pain. In healing the sick and the demon-possessed, Jesus had already demonstrated that he could heal with just a word. Yet here in Capernaum, Luke records that the touch of Jesus' hand healed the sick. Why not just speak a word and heal the whole crowd at once? Why go to all the trouble of treating each person individually face-to-face? Because human touch is so very important. Does someone need a touch from you today? Now, I am not calling abuse victims demon possessed. No, I am not calling abuse victims sick. And some people, because of the abuse they went through, don't like to be touched. And some people just don't like to be touched whether they experience abuse or not. So we have to find appropriate ways to seek boundary comprehension, uh, boundary understandings before we demonstrate the proper comfort that is needed in any given moment with any survivor. But I wanted to... um, basically make it clear that that's how we love people and so I'll be sending the rest of the interview to you so you can make sure you get everything you need it um and I want to say this this is another reason why I'm experiencing religious disillusionment um so many times in my Christian walk when I was a Christian and now I'm a completely secular person is that I learned more about Christian issues from non-Christians than Christians. The Christians would not talk about Christian issues for the most part but the non-Christians talked about Christian issues for the most part, too. And I do, I do feel a sense of pain about those things because I am a rape victim. I am a sexual abuse victim. I am a sexual harassment victim. I am a molestation victim. I was gang raped and I was solo raped. Um, I'm a victim of sexual violence. I'm a victim of sexual assault. I'm a victim of sexual bullying. Um, I'm a male member of the Me Too. I'm a male member of Time's Up and I'm mean, a male member of Church Two. This is Church Two movement. Basically. This is the epitome of the Church Two movement, when you think about it. So I understand these pains. The Newt R. Kelly movement, the righteous indignation towards uh, Bill Cosby, I feel those feelings. Um I feel it. Um, As I close, I want to say this because I meant to say this from another episode. I don't, I tell people hell is not your issue if you're a positive person. Don't worry about or stress about hell because you're not hell on earth as a person. So I meant to say that in my last episode talking about Bishop Carlton Demetrius Pearson. Um. The, 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 these things really, really cause me pain. And, um... I'm just, uh truly hurt. You know, this is the biggest reason why I left the church. I left the church in my heart. So... Some people say you're secular because of trauma. That's not true for every secular person. That's like saying you're religious because of trauma. That's not true for every religious person. We all have our own journeys and valleys and hills and mountains that we all maneuver in our lives. Whether they're forced there or we're put in there. In this case, abuse is forced upon us, not it's not placed on upon it's not placed of our own doing. It's placed on the doing of others. So, thank you for understanding. <laughs>